Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I'm joined by former executive producer of The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and current co-host of the AI for Humans podcast, Gavin Purcell. This is episode 46. From the way politics infected late-night comedy thanks to Donald Trump, to how the pandemic changed the industry, to the scary and exciting about AI, we begin with the first time I interviewed Gavin 15 years ago and how the original Jimmy Fallon late night show disrupted the status quo. Thanks so much for doing this. I uh, I was thinking back, we've, we've had lots of interactions on Twitter mainly um, and uh, email and whatnot, but uh, we actually, the last time I interviewed you, um, it was a long time ago. At this the only point. other time I interviewed, yeah, it was in 2009, yeah. almost 15 years ago. And I and I think I do want to start there, but I, I think it's an interesting, uh, you're definitely an interesting thinker in the world of the entertainment and media. Um, I, I definitely want to talk about your new podcast, uh, AI for Humans. And, and I, I really think just in general, kind of the past, present, and future of, of entertainment and media, which, you know, it, it, and then past, like not that far distant past, like 14 yeah. years ago when we last talked. Um, and that was when you were one of the top producers at uh, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Um, I, I interviewed you and uh, Mike Shoemaker and Jimmy about uh, what that show was. And, and it was very much a, a different show, like a really unique show at the time. Um, and, and I just just to pull one of the quotes that you said to me uh, in, in that interview uh, when I was writing for Mediate was you said, we go into the business of creating these things, talking about these kind of viral videos, thinking about how they will live off the TV show. Not like we go in and say, how will we create a viral hit? But we definitely think of this as how do we make them so they can live on? in a different way. And, uh, and, you know, maybe it's not so seismic of a, of a point of view now, or even maybe it was, you know, in five, 10 years later, but at the time it really was, you know, especially in thinking of like linear traditional television, the way late night was. And so let, let's start there as kind of our past point. Um, yeah. tell me about what those early, early days and years of, of working with Jimmy and on that show, as it was really coming into being and, and thinking about things digitally, not just linearly. Yeah, I, I think I had like what I what I refer to as like one or my like, you know, maybe I've had like kind of six really big insights in my life right before I started that show. And I think part of the reason why I got that show, which was this idea that like television was going to become what we really see it now to be, which is like more of an anytime, anytime, you know, on on all the time, figure out what you're going to get when you get it kind of thing, because I kind of come up through Twitter, right? Like when I say come up through Twitter, I mean, I think like you, I was on Twitter very early, I think in 2006. And my previous job was kind of like, you know, as an EP and showrunner of a show called Attack of the Show at G4, which was kind of like living on the edge of where that technology was going. And we saw a lot of that stuff early. So when I first met with Jimmy, um, I tell the story, but I, I didn't really want that job. It was a funny thing to me at the time. I was like, well, I wasn't really interested in doing the, the producer job at late night. because I love what I was doing. But I did bring a document with me, like a three-page document, which kind of laid out some of the things. And one of those things was you have an opportunity to be the first show that can be on 24 hours a day. And what I meant by that was that social media could be a distribution channel in addition to being a um, way to interact with your audience, right? And I think yeah. that when I say this, one of my kind of six insights of the cross of my life, like I think that has very much come true. Like I think social media 
allows for a show. One of the beauty things about Jimmy's show is you have an hour of TV every day and you get a studio that's very expensive and a very expensive host that becomes like, you know, essentially a, a, a 10 to 15 pieces of content that can travel in different ways, depending on how you break it up. And that really led to this idea of like segmentation of those shows, particularly. And, you know, that and SNL, there are certain shows on TV that are designed in a way for that, right? And like being yeah. able to push that stuff out really led to I don't I don't want to say it led to the downfall of all, of all this stuff. I I I ruined late night. This is a weird tweet I got. And I was like, oh my God, I, I hope I didn't ruin late night. But it was like <laughs> it was a thing that like felt like at the time it was an opportunity that that worked out pretty well, I think. Right. Like I think ultimately, you know, it did change the format of the show. And I think if you look at those shows now, you know, I think the vast majority of their audience comes from social channels, right? Like yeah. when you think about like where their audience is coming from, that no one is real. I, mean, I shouldn't say no one because there still is an audience. It's an important advertising audience that stays up and watches it, at, you know, at 1130 on, on NBC. But even the talent themselves, I think, care mostly about like who sees this show. And most of those views are coming off of YouTube or Twitter or other places that open the door. I mean, I always thought that John Oliver putting up his entire show for free on YouTube YouTube was like such a radical idea when it first came out, but it grew that show super fast and it, and it worked right. Like, and these are the kind of things that I think when we first started, like when we first met, like TV was not thinking that way at all. Right. It just Definitely. wasn't that that's the biggest thing. Yeah. It's so interesting. You, you say that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of different ways to go. Cause actually the, the job that I started about a year and a half after our interview was the digital producer for Piers Morgan tonight. And frankly, yep. that was when I sat down with Piers um, to pitch myself to him, uh, him thinking it was an off the record uh, coffee a, 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 as a reporter. And I was sitting there going, I'm going to pitch him on this idea. It was the same thing. You're going to be on TV on CNN for an hour. Uh, it's going to be an interview show. You know, sure. You might be able to build an audience there, but if you really want to do it, you know, there's 23 other hours and, and we can, we could do that with these, this crazy thing called Twitter and, you know, and, yeah. and the website. Um, and, it, and it's so interesting because, you know, even I was, I was looking back at some of the other stories that were written about it because it was one thing to do it at 1230. Um, but another thing to even do it at 1130 when, when, uh, you know, tonight show started 2014, there's this New York times story about, about YouTube. Oh, wow. Jimmy Fallon really doing big on YouTube. And you see it as a branding play rather than, you know, not putting ads on it necessarily. You know, this is about building the brand of the show. And I, I mean, look, I, I, people may say that, but I, I don't think that, that that ruined late night at all. I think there's lots of external factors, but it definitely helped establish an audience that, yeah. uh, that, that was, that was different. You know, it, it was, it, it was hitting people in different ways. And it, and it does, it, I, I do wonder, you know, uh, you know, I guess not necessarily why more people didn't do that, but if you think that that really was this, this precursor to where television went in the subsequent years. Uh, so I think more people didn't do it because from an economic standpoint, it was a bad idea. When I when I say that, I mean, I got pushed back and we got pushed back. I shouldn't say just me, but we got pushed back. And Jimmy was always behind this idea, right? But we always got put because he understood the branding aspect of it. He understood like the personal growth aspect of it, what it would mean for him to not only be like well-known in the States, but also internationally, right? Because that's a yeah. big thing that you can do with, with online. I think the biggest pushback we always got was from the network, right? And I, and I think this makes sense, right? It's the same, and this what we can talk more about, like as we get to the present and maybe the future, of how it is always difficult for companies to undercut their current profits with the plan of something that could grow in the future. And I think this is just across the board. It's the innovator's dilemma, right? It gets talked about all the time. So back then, 
NBC, in fact, we were we were way late to YouTube. And one of the reasons we were finally able to get on YouTube, we weren't able to be on YouTube because NBC's plan for selling video digital clips was always through the NBC.com website. And the reason that I was able to push along with Jimmy to get on YouTube, and I think even Mike was still there at the time, was because Kimmel was able to be on YouTube. And we watched, I, I literally had a chart in my office of like Kimmel's YouTube subs and our YouTube subs once we launched because they had a giant head start at us and we eventually took over for them. And that was like a cool thing. But yeah. I was so frustrated because it was like, look, this is the pathway to what we need to do here. Now, are you possibly... Um, uh, vampiring off some of your ad revenue. Yes. And obviously we're looking at this world now and it never, you know, you and I both kind of dipped our toes into the whole world of the Google and Facebook kind of uh, bastardization of what happened to digital media. Yeah. It never really made up for those digital pennies as Jeff Zucker said, but there are digital dimes now out there versus like the digital pennies that were before. And I do believe at this point, the YouTube income for the Tonight Show is it, I, know I haven't been there for a couple of years, but is a significant source of revenue, right? And the other thing that those do is they exist over time. And like, if you study somebody like Mr. Beast and all those uh, people that are really good at YouTube, a huge part of that is developing an archival sense of things that are going to get views. No, Even if you're not doing new stuff, you're going to continue to get views on your older clips that have been successful. So like you're building an, an archive and a library there um, that I think has been a good benefit for them from a money standpoint as the on-air on money starts to kind of dip down further. Right, right. And, and, and to be honest, I, I think that it even worked better for Jimmy, you know, than even others in that same space, because a lot of what he was doing was, was sort of evergreen. They could yes. live on for years yes. and years. They weren't tied to this moment. Um, so, so yeah, totally, totally smart there. Why haven't we seen a hit late night show on streaming and how the pandemic affected the industry? You had this great thread in 2019. You have some really good Twitter threads. People. Oh, thank you. Twitter, I appreciate but, it. Uh, yeah. It was, you, you were quoted. Um, I think it was another New York Times piece about streaming and um, talk shows. And I, I would suggest everyone go back and, and find this. But you, you have this one quote um, where talking about why talk shows weren't working on streaming. And you're saying, it's my belief that the first streaming show that's really going to make it in the genre should probably be daily, given a six month ramp to try to make it happen. It's harder for the streaming networks to do this because it doesn't fit their scripted model. And there's lots of insights into that about the need for, you know, at bats, as you describe it, or, or, or getting yep. out there, you know, and, and, and doing things over and over again to see it. And, and I do wonder, you know, if, if we kind of move a little bit further down the road to, to the media world of today, or even the recent past, it does seem like things are moving, you know, much faster. There's not that, that rope that people have to, to yeah. really try this established an audience. It's like, you know, you, people either buy in for, you know, a, like a season and then they're out or, 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 you know, you, you, things are, I mean, there, there's, I've seen like these funny clips about, about this, but like, you know, things get canceled before they're even aired because you can look at the algorithm and it's like, well, yeah. this isn't working. It's like, wait, I haven't even tried to. Streamberry. It's all Streamberry's fault, right? <laughs> right Have exactly. you seen uh, the new episode of uh, Black Mirror, the Streamberry episode? No, it's no, like, I haven't. Amazing. I think I heard about oh, You should yeah, watch yeah. it. It's called uh, Joan is Awful, but it's a very good send up of uh, Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess what, you know, using that as the context to it, um, and, and being able to kind of be part of the early years of, of Fallon to establish that. Yeah. Um, what do you think this does? Kind of this new environment where where you know everything is is moving so much faster now, and kind of barrier entry might be easier to try. But if you're at a big company like that, you don't get those kind of at bats that you once did. Okay, so there's a couple of big thoughts I have here. One is 
I think that you're absolutely right. I still believe for a show, a talk show, which means like a front facing person who's a personality developing, I think it doesn't happen automatically and you never get a sense of really what's going to happen on a regular basis. And I think if you don't give that person the at-bats to help work it out, they'll never figure it out, right? And I think also the big difference between daily and weekly is hard, right? Because daily is much more expensive, but you also get four to five of those attempts a week. And, you know, we used to always say like, you know, if we had five shows a week, you know, if we had like one that we walked away from the week, like feeling great about that was awesome. And then there was usually one or two that are like, oh, that was really not that good. But that's part of the experience. And a big part of those shows is always, what's the connection with the host like, right? Because the host is always the most important part of those shows. Like the content almost doesn't even matter as much as the host does. Right. Um. So I think that's part of it. The other side of this, I think really has to do with the changing economics, right? Like I, I think that the hardest thing for a show like Kimmel or like Tonight Show or any of these shows that are very large and trying to do very expensive things is that they're very big budgets, right? And the talent's expensive and the production's expensive and you want to try to do all these things. I think there's always going to be an audience for that thing. And I mean, even think about from the news standpoint for the Today Show, like what the Today Show is and how expensive that show is. At some point, there is a flip of the show is too expensive to make versus what the revenue that can come in on it is. And my theory is with this is what you're going to see is probably shows like The Tonight Show or other things like that are going to get less expensive, meaning they may be less, you see less stuff on screen. But I also think there will be a proliferation of these that exist in small pockets that are going to be like self-funded, almost like the thing yeah. I can't believe someone hasn't done yet. And, and please, if you're out there, please go do it. Someone, a, a four or five person YouTube team who's smart and they have to be people that are good writers and good producers could a hundred percent up in like the John Oliver model or something very simple on, on a YouTube platform. Right. And I think that once one of those shows, and what I mean, one uh, one of those shows success, and I'm not, I know this is nothing against YouTubers because I think in general, there's probably 15 of those shows, and I'm describing them. I maybe I'm not super familiar with, but once you get a show that does kind of what John Oliver does, when you think about what John Oliver does, he's essentially a YouTuber, right? He talks to camera and he's got a picture over the side of him. Yeah. When you get a show that's as well written and as as well produced as John Oliver's show that is successful with like, say, six to 10 people. And not to say, I'm, this is again, not me trying to like, you know, they do a ton of work over there and the research they do and all that stuff. But I think that's the next stage of that format. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I think you're going to see a group of people who are smart, they get together and they produce something that can be on a daily basis doing that same sort of thing. And it's up produced from your traditional single person players, right? Like there's a lot of people who have done like the, I mean, Phil DeFranco is somebody that's been doing on camera news right. type stuff for 20 years or maybe not long, 15 years. But like, I think there's going to be a team of somebody that figured this out and that person could become like a star. And when that happens, it's like, imagine like the Mr. Beast of, of late night TV, but it's a YouTube centric only thing. Like that feels like then it's a completely different model overall. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think so. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that there were two big disruptions to late night that, that we can talk about. I want to go with the second one first, um, chronologically, but you know, I, I look at you, you left, um, the tonight show and then you came back, uh, in yep. 2020, right. It was, it yep. was, yeah. And so I came back like, uh, yeah, with, uh, I spent my time came back in late 2019 and stayed through t till November, November 19 to November of 20. 
Got it. Okay. Right. So, so the kind of the pandemic side of it, which it does feel like, you know, the, the more you talk about that, the, the, my first thought was some good news, uh, which was the, uh, the, the John Krasinski show, which was like, oh, yeah, totally, you know, real ragtag thing. And, and, uh, and then he sold it to CBS or Viacom and it was like, okay, well that, yeah. that ended. And then it actually not the went, same thing anymore. Yeah. No. And it, I don't even, I think they like literally stopped producing it completely, which was mm. just so bizarre. But even just from a late night perspective, you know, some of those pandemic shows, um, uh, like the the Fallon pandemic, I, mean, I thought were great. Yeah, but they also maybe sh- shown a light to places like NBC and saying, hmm, you know, maybe we don't need to be spending as much money as we were once spending on it because because you know this is it's personal. There's like this real connection to it. It's fun. It fit you know it fit him. But it also like I wonder what coming out of the pandemic does to the industry as a whole because of what yeah. we were able to see it during that moment. I think that's 100% true. I think the other thing that gets underestimated is is where stuff is coming from and how people consume stuff now. Being on TV used to mean you were special. And what I mean by that is like when you turn there was only so much TV even when cable TV was big like oh this person has a TV show they're special. Now everything we see I'm going to try to hold my phone up I don't have it like is on this, right? Like yeah. it's on a little tiny phone and uh, especially if you're watching TikTok, right? You're scrolling through, like they look the same when I say they, like the famous people in some ways than the people that are coming after them and the normal people. Now, do charismatic, famous people still pop there? Yes, but it's a much more even playing field as to what you're looking at. And I think that that's part of the thing about when I, it's funny, I've been as a, as a person who like, has been a consumer of TikTok for a while, but not a creator. I've started playing around trying to make my own videos there. And it's yeah. tricky, right? Because it's like, I'm not used to it. But one of the things I've learned is that like, people don't give a shit there about production quality. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, it's really more about like, oh, is that an interesting story? Is there something interesting you're saying? Like, it really doesn't matter. And in some ways, it's the opposite, right? They want to feel that connection to somebody who's just shooting a video in their, in their bedroom or, or in their kitchen or whatever. And it feels like that has and, and i have some my next kind of insight that i've kind of come around on when i mentioned the first insight was like this kind of social media world my bigger insight right now that i've been thinking a lot about is that creator the creator economy is coming for everyone right that this idea that the creator economy which i mean by that is like you know two camera people talking there's some sort of interaction where you know individual creators are like the thing like uh, you know, a lot of people talk about how like, oh, I hate the fact that kids love you want to be a YouTuber now. But it's like, this is the celebrities, right? These yeah. are the people that matter. And granted, like, you know, can there still be a giant hit like Wednesday? Or or are there people that come up like Zendaya who come up through the traditional system? Yes. And those people, like I have two daughters and they're still very famous to those to my daughters. But I also know a lot of these other people that have come up in this other way. And I just think those lines are going to blur more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah. For people like, you know, I'm you know, 39, you know, they, the, the the people that are famous YouTubers or TikTokers feel very different than the Zendayas of the world, but to the next generation, to the Gen Z, they don't, they're, they're they're all just kind of the same, the same thing. There's the smoothness to it. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, the other, the other aspect to this though, that I do think that's a, that's a big disruptor to late night, um, is, uh, is politics, you know, is of course, the, the yes. Trump of it. And I do, yeah. I, I was going back and in, in, in researching this, I was looking at, uh, September, 2016, uh, the Jimmy tussling Trump's hair, uh, and, and the reaction to it, just the, the insane backlash to it. And to be honest, there actually yeah. was some backlash to it in the moment that I was finding, 
But then yeah. almost retroactively, like in, you know, once he won, uh, essentially, there was like this this weird second wave of backlash. And to me, I mean, I know he he would then go on to kind of apologize for it uh, a right. couple years later. But to me, that was like the first sign that politics has really infected the culture uh, of America in, in a negative I think, way. I would I, say a negative way. Uh, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think you're right. And I think that like, look, I think we all, uh, me and Mike Shoemaker had talked a bunch about how when we first launched the show, we got kind of very lucky to launch in 2008, the year that Obama was elected, because in a lot of ways, there was an optimistic layer of like where the country was going. And, and by the way, I'm, this is not a political statement. It was just the fact that we had elected our first black president there when he was young, right? There was all this kind of sense of like, of, of maybe anything is possible in America and maybe, and then I think 2016 was a very different experience, right? And I think what you're right is that what I felt when, because I wasn't, I was there when that happened. Happened. And then I left pretty quickly after to go work at Vox. And then I came back, you know, in, in when it was still um, of the Trump presidency, the right? It, yeah. In the heat of it. And I think that it was interesting to see the difference in like just how the, the how it all played out, right? I think Jimmy's idea, and I don't think this is a bad idea, I think it's a tricky one in some ways in today's media environment, is that he always wanted to be the Johnny Carson, right? Like, and Walt right. really believes in this idea of of entertaining people and making it fit at making sh the show feel fun and making it as broad as possible, because that's a way to kind of open up the door. I think this is a really interesting conversation to have as whether or not you can even have shows like that anymore, which is a really hard thing for some people to be like, who want to do that. And by the way, I like shows like that too. Yeah. Um, because people are so divided, right? I mean, you, you know, this, you've covered this for a long time, but like, it's why I believe there's an ascendancy of Fox, you know, in, in its own way. And, and what Gutfield does is in that space, like it's because it, uh, people talk about like, there's interesting stories I've seen is like the Gutfield show again, no, no shade here, but he, his show is be getting better ratings than, you know, Fallon, Kimmel and yep. Bear. Part of that is, I think just that like, they just have a larger on like people who watch TV. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's like these tribes that have all kind of separated away. So, and by the way, it's also why I think John Oliver's show does really well because John Oliver's on the other side, right? He's like right. the other way of it. And he has that tribe coming to him. So I, it bummed me out a lot. I, I still feel, I mean, I believe politics is an incredibly important part of what America is, but when politics became the entertainment and the news of, of America, the, the actual, like that made me feel bad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, especially like, yeah, I agree with you. In, in 08, there was that optimism, but there was also this ability where you know you didn't it didn't have to politics didn't have to be anchored in our culture at all absolutely you know? and that, that totally. was one of the reasons i think you know jimmy was so successful yep. uh in those and then and then came 2016 and you know colbert and and kimmel in particular and then you know to a lesser extent you know everybody just became yep. that that just became the conversation um and in, in a really like detrimental way i would say uh well to, I, I, and i agree and what's interesting is looking at the cycles of this because i, I there's an argument that in 2000 and whatever it was too, whenever Stewart, John Stewart first came up, like he was a reaction in part to the George W. Bush presidency. But even then you didn't have this like kind of like social media aspect. So it kind of goes back to our first conversation when everybody's on 24 hours a day and media gets spread across all hours of the day. You want people that are going to be connecting with your thoughts on this thing. Whereas back then, when John Stewart first came up, there was some of that, but it wasn't as tribal in that people weren't using John Stewart as a flag to say, like, this is what I believe. And I think that's what shifted. No, I, I in fact, I think that some of those, you know, the John Stewart Daily Show of the, those years 
could not really exist, I don't think, in the in the Trump era because right. it, it was it was challenging in a way that it, it that did not have the audience that that people were looking for. Coming up, reflecting on Purcell's excellent and curious Trump era show with Sarah Silverman and the future of artificial intelligence in media and entertainment. That's next. But first, I want to read you a little bit from my latest rabbit hole column over at the Fourth Watch Substack on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Because the consensus failure is what's powered RFK Jr.'s rise, not RFK Jr. himself. The establishment hates the mainstreaming of RFK Jr., but they have only themselves to blame. A couple weeks ago in June of 2023, yes, June of 2023, former CNN legal analyst and prominent Zoom enthusiast Jeffrey Tubin was defending vaccine mandates. You're not free to put other people in danger, he told YouTube host Patrick Bet David during a guest appearance. When asked about people in the military forced to leave their jobs over the mandates, Tubin dug in. Nobody forced them. Your choice was to take the vaccine, he said, and that's a good thing. It was a great encapsulation of the sort of COVID consensus orthodoxy pushed so hard by the political and media establishment in this country that these people have become incapable of introspection or rationality. Follow the science, they said, until you follow the science directly off a critical thinking cliff. But it also got me thinking about RFK, the Democratic candidate for president who's amassed upwards of 20% of the vote in recent polls, despite the fact that he was deplatformed off most social media networks years ago, marginalized out of polite society for decades. Suddenly, he's having this moment, bringing out the curious on the left and the right, and in bringing out the hyperbolic attacks from the corporate media and the mainstream left. What's really behind it? It's not that his positions have changed, and it's not that suddenly new information has emerged validating his positions either. No, it's not really about him at all. It's that the same establishment who most hate RFK are responsible for his rise to relative power. It is their failure on various elements of COVID and other consensus points of view that allowed someone like RFK to suddenly develop an interested following. But it also tells us something about our media environment. There was once a protection in an environment where choice didn't exist. Gatekeepers had control of all the narratives. But now there's so many choices. People can find honesty outside the mainstream. The total monopoly on the consensus messaging and protection from gatekeepers is gone. And in that wake, there's going to be a lot of hysterical flailing. We're seeing that now. They're terrified to compete on a level playing field. So it's happening with RFK, but it's also what's happening more broadly across variety of platforms in the mainstream media. You can read more at fourthwatch.media. More with Gavin Purcell coming up. I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. You can go and find more from the rabbit hole columns, original deep dive columns like I was just reading, full podcast episodes. Check it out. Just five bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. Now back to Gavin Purcell. You also did an incredible show that I really liked, Sarah Silverman's I mm. Love You, America. Um, and I remember a clip. I don't know if it was the first episode, but it was one of the early episodes. Um, Sarah goes to Louisiana, spends some time with his family. Um, and yeah. again, this is this is in the heat of the Trump years also. And yet, you know, I Love You, America, you know, this was not about politics. And, I mean, it was about politics, but it was also about America and Americans. Yes. And, and so yeah. much of what became our political conversation, even our cultural conversation was 
this person is bad and the people that like them are bad too. Whereas this was really able to separate. I think, you know, for people that are looking for it, there was an October 2017 episode um, where, you know, it was just not condescending. It was just authentic conversation. And it was so great. And I wonder, you know, what it was about that moment that, you know, had you and Sarah saying, we need to do this. And and did you get the positive reaction that, that you know, I, I hope you did because I thought it was great. Well, okay. There's a lot of things. To, so first of all, that show was really Sarah's baby. Like she crafted it and her partner, Amy's V, but like Sarah was the one who wanted to do it. And I think that's an important thing was that she saw a need for it. I think she came out of the Trump election, you know, obviously Sarah falls in the far left category. Um, but I think she saw a divided country and wanted to kind of like approach it in a way that felt like she was going to be seeing something that 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 maybe she hadn't seen before, wanted to go see and talk to people and hear about like why this happened. Yeah. And I think that that was such an interesting that I was at that shoot and it was so fascinating to me. So, yeah, the basic idea was we were going to try to find have her interview a family that were Trump voters. Right. And like try to figure out like what it was. And this was a lower middle class family. And in um a uh, new orleans suburb um you know and they were a white family but they were very like um you know i think education level was a little bit lower and it was just interesting to hear but sarah approached it in a way that felt heartfelt and i think that was an important part of this too i think this is you know i think this is the fundamental and by the way i'm not a not a politics scholar so please anybody out there but this feels like the fundamental issue that we're dealing with right now in america in general is that I would consider myself center left as a as a person, right? Like that's kind of where I land. But I also I am not I am not in the far left camp. I believe that there's a lot of interesting things to be said by being more center and central. And I think that it's a weirdly it sounds like a dangerous thing to say now. Do you know what I mean? And that's the crazy thing is that like, and when I say dangerous is the wrong way to put it. Like people, I, but but like I mean, it, there's a world where you know somebody says this, or you're center left. What is what? Where do you disagree with the left? And it's like that's the part of America that feels broken a little bit to me that like the conversations are really always happening at the extremes. And then like in order to have a conversation happen in the middle, you have to do something like what Sarah did, which is like be a famous famous person, go out there and try to do it. And even then, you know, the show got canceled after a couple seasons. I think in part there might not have been an audience for it as much there as good as that show was. And I stand by that show. And I think, you know, Sarah is an incredible person and I really believe morally, like her heart is always in the right place and does really smart things. As good as that show was, there wasn't people who wanted that per se. There were people who gave us good feedback on it, but it wasn't like a massive hit. It wasn't like everybody was talking about it. And that's where I worry how media kind of draws people apart. Yeah. No, I, I, and you know, I, I also, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's like a show that's based around conversations between people that are, you know, and come from different points of view or even just, you know, kind of, you know, curiosity and, and, yeah. it, um, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, one of it is just, it, it maybe would have taken some time for it to find an audience, or maybe, the, you know, these are the things that can exist on places like a YouTube or, you know, an Instagram, um, you know, I still, you know, maybe I'm the glass half full side of me is like, I, I think that there's a real audience for it because I think most people at their core don't really want to anchor their lives around politics. Um, it's going to be harder than ever as we enter this next season. But yes. I do think that. Oh my um, God, for sure. Yeah. But I, I would, I, I think that I still think that, you know, and I just from, from being in Texas and talking to people who, you know, don't spend all day on Twitter, like I do, or thinking about the media, like I do, like most people are not living that, that life and, and are interacting on their, you know, on a regular basis with people that are, that have very different points of view. 
Yeah, it, it's, there's less and less of it. There's more divisiveness than ever before. But I still think that that's the overriding person in this country. Like that is the average person in this country. Is yeah, is really I hope different. so. I, I think you're right, and I think that like obviously, you know, the other side of this to me is always like. How does that get reflected in voting ultimately? Because you worry about like how votings can be swayed, who the people that are, I, by the way, I'm not saying that I, voting is all legal and everybody's doing legal stuff. Uh, but what I'm saying is like the the sort of messages that get told to people and how stuff can happen. Like it's very easy to deliver messages now that can be very pointed and very specific. And, you know, that can convince somebody. And it goes back to the downside of having the 24 hour brick in your hand is, you get those messages all together and you're not exactly sure what's coming from a credible source um, and how it comes in. So then you're having to make this kind of mental gymnastics to kind of maybe think about what stuff is. And you might have a pretty good idea of something and see something come in and you'd be like, oh, that's right. But then you also have to say, is this real? Is this, is yeah. this, does this make sense? Does this track? Like all that stuff is way harder than it ever used to be. Well, that's a perfect segue to the next topic, which is, uh, is, is where we are now and maybe where we're heading. And that is, um, in the world of AI, um, your, your new podcast, AI for humans, um, is great. And it, I mean, look, obviously it's perfectly timed. Um, this is like what everyone is talking about, you know, with the chat GPTs of the world and mid journey, it's like, it's a fascinating and somewhat scary time. Well, that's actually, yes. let me ask you, what is okay. this? Because, and especially from an entertainment, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot from a journalism perspective, but like, is this a good or a bad thing? Should people be worried or should they be invigorated by what we're looking at now okay. and what's kind of what we're going through? I think there's multiple ways to look at this. And I think the one thing I will say is that if you if you get too far out and you think about like the end of the world AI, which is a big conversation, and I know yeah. people hear this, there's, the, there's a thing called the AI alignment problem, which is a technical sounding way of saying how likely is AI going to kill us all? Right. But like, yeah. and this, this is a, this is a thing that people actually worry about. I think for right now, for normal people, normal humans, you can think about those things, but you can spin out of it really easily. Right. And I think you have to understand the thing I think that's important to think about is I, I actually heard a really interesting uh, metaphor the other day. There's a book by a guy, oh, shit. Anyway, I'll figure out what it is, but the metaphor essentially was, um, imagine if AI is Superman. And what I mean by that is Superman is an alien that came to our planet and landed, and he got lucky enough to be found in the hands of, of the Kents, who turned out to be moral, happy people that raised him in a positive way. If the other thing had happened, if he had been raised in a place that, like, imagine the character Homelander from The Boys, that character is a very different version of Superman that has the different uh, set of aspects and ways to look at life. So that can spin you out. When I say those kind of things, like if the idea of like AI as the boogeyman can really spin you out into something. So there's that side of it, which is like the, S, the, the kind of like larger risk thing. I think the more important thing for people and humans to think about when we talk about like people our age or even younger is this will change almost every aspect of our life in some way. And, and when I say that, that sounds like hyperbole, but it really isn't yeah. in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think... People have argued that this is my my thought is like people are like this is like fire and it's like what it's like it's not that but what it is is maybe another it's like when the internet happened and you're you're old enough to remember when the internet really happened it changed everything literally everything was changed and I feel like that's what we're looking at um, and I think the biggest thing for people to know is like I think there's a lot of worries around jobs right jobs are a thing that people are concerned about and I get it I mean like. I think there are a lot of jobs that are going to get eliminated by this. And I think that, you know, if you have found that your job, people are talking about your job being eliminated by it a lot, then maybe there's a good chance that it is. So if that's the case, like 
start looking into it and start learning about it and try to figure out like what are the aspects of your job that can't be eliminated or you know just like when other technologies come around like you do have to start thinking okay well if i'm a you know if i'm a horseshoer <laughs> and cars are coming around i better realize there's going to be a lot less horseshoeing jobs coming up you know yeah, but that doesn't mean yeah. there aren't more jobs that will come out of it and there will be i think that's right. I guess there's the two sides of this. And I would say like are the, the average person, let's say someone who, who consumes content, you know, what, yep. what are they going to be experiencing the positives and negatives? And I do want to get to that, but like first, you know, I, I wrote a, um, a column recently, uh, called AI will replace the bad journalists. And I don't really mean like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I basically, I, I was trying to think through and, and sort of arrive at where I, I feel like people that are like really great journalists, it's going to be harder for AI to replace them than your yes. kind of like average to below average journalist who whose jobs would be more you know easily replaceable by by you know machine learning and those sort of things. You know, similarly, I wonder what you think um, on like on a, on a creator side, you know, entertainment, you know, industry side. You know, will there be kind of I, yeah. winners and losers of that? First of all, I am a member of the WGA and I understand why it's a part of the WGA strike and, and I support the WGA writer striking. I do believe this stuff is going to find its way into the creative process at some point. And I, my argument is that these are tools and we should use the tools and we should kind of put together tools and that it's not necessarily going to replace um, writers. That said, um, the argument I do make when somebody asks me about this is there is a world not that far in the future where if you trained a model on a bunch of Hollywood scripts that you could turn out something like Dante's Peak, let's say, or or something that feels like, I don't know why that came to my head, but some sort of like kind of averagey okay. action movie in a way. The thing that I think you will never turn out with a model, at least not for a long while, is something like Napoleon Dynamite. And the reason I say something like Napoleon Dynamite is that it, it feels like it is a fresh voice, it is original, it is unique. And what I think I hope will happen, actually, there's a really great podcast I heard. Um, uh, oh, it's the podcast called Your Favorite Band Sucks. And they talked about the music side of this, right? Okay, yeah. And on, on the music side and in the, in the, in the movie and television side and the creative side, I think probably on the book side too, it's all the same argument, which is the stuff that was easy to do will probably be able to be done by AI. Same thing with your journalism argument, right? When I say easy to do, you know, up until this point, there's been no, like, you can't really do an easy movie per se, but there is a structure to movies. There is a, a idea of what an action movie is. You have characters. There are all sorts of books around how to write screenplays. What will not be easy to do is to bring your own personal experience or your own imagination into something and then make that the thing, which is why, like, I use Napoleon Dynamite because, like, that is so clearly out of one person's brain, right. right? And that's what I think there is a world where like what is cool for people that like interesting things and like things that feel unique and different. There's a real world where in the future, creative people start doing lots more of that stuff. And we get this like kind of golden age of creative work from humans, not or maybe like there's a there's a world where the AI tool helps them. But like it really it's coming from the heart of humans. And that's the thing that succeeds. And I think that's the best case scenario ultimately here that I, I can see happening. Yeah, that, that would be, that would be a good scenario because I, I do think like there is a general worry also, you know, if, if you know, of just an average person saying like, I want to be able to trust this thing that I'm, I'm reading or, oh, or yeah, well, that's a different argument. right, right. Yeah. That it's coming from a person and not, you know, and not this artificial creation and that, and that is also kind of the audience side of it is like, will people become, I guess, I don't know, will they be able to trust 
the content they consume if it's not come if they know even if they know it's not coming from a human but especially if they don't know well okay so there's a couple things wrapped up there one i would say is what does trust mean in that instance like because i think when you're talking about journalism it's a slightly different thing right like with journalism you're purporting news and then you actually have to get like real facts right in an ideal world right we've entered a world where a lot of journalism is opinion but but you want to get real facts out, right? And then it becomes a question of, okay, trust is very important in that scenario because trust means this happened or it didn't happen, right? Or And that is incredibly worrisome, right? Like, I mean, you saw the, the Pope Midjourney story, which is, you know, if you didn't know what that was, it was a Midjourney is a very well-known AI generation, image generation story, uh, uh, tool. And somebody created a, a picture of a Pope wearing a puffy jacket. It got published in the world and people thought it was real. It became a viral sensation that the Pope looked very fashionable. Turns out it was completely made up. A hundred percent picture that was created with an AI image generator. That or or even there was a story, I don't know if you saw this a couple of weeks ago, where there was a Pentagon bombing, right? And, oh, yeah. and it turned out that there were AI generated images. And the thing this goes back to what we were saying before is I knew when that story came out, because I'm now educated on AI, to know, okay, I first my first thought is, is this real? Which is something I think a lot of people are going to be asking across all media platforms going forward. Is this real? The second thing was, okay, if it's if it is real, I there are things that I know to look for, which are like the the seams possibly in the background or or the word blurriness, and I could tell pretty quickly it wasn't. But it then becomes a situation of how it spreads, right? And you have to like make sure the educational comes up on that. Sorry, the other side of this is when you talk about entertainment, truth is not as big a deal, right? Because entertainment is about storytelling, and it's a little bit more about like how you can elicit emotion. And weirdly, one of the interesting things about these LLMs, a large language model, um, which is ChatGPT or Bard for Google, they're pretty good at what they call hallucinating, which is making stuff up, right? And but but part of what being creative is is making stuff up. And and yeah. again, I'm not trying to say that they can do any sort of job as well as any human. In fact, they're pretty bad at it right now. But like, that's an interesting side on the creative side, right? Like, and you have to kind of see that that could be something that would be really uh, uh, could progress pretty quickly. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. I mean, especially like, you know, using it as a tool, you can see scenarios where it can actually be like a really good tool for a creative type. And then where does that blend into yes. being being the, you know, creative? Uh, it's 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 gonna be fascinating. Lots of questions uh, for the future. Um, I'm glad you're on it. More with Gavin, including the fourth watch lightning round on Mark Zuckerberg, the future of artificial intelligence in the media and more available for paid subscribers of fourth watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Gavin. Uh, That was a really interesting conversation. I just think Gavin is one of the most interesting thinkers out there on content and media and the future. I want to also tell you, you can go subscribe to his podcast, the uh, AI for humans podcast, which is great. And you can find that on all of your podcast platforms. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. Song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and follow and like and rate and review this podcast as well on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.